Neil Sharp, partner at Penn and the host of this podcast. This is a special edition of the Rise of the Customer podcast, focusing in on the life sciences sector, and in particular, how healthcare systems and life sciences companies must adapt and evolve to the unstoppable market forces which are shaping consumer expectations. Commercial models in life sciences organizations have historically been built upon volume-based reimbursement, and it seems that that's going to have to change. While they've been successful through the blockbuster years in improving access of important medical technologies for large populations of patients with chronic conditions, they don't promote the sustainability of healthcare system. Volume-based reimbursement incentivizes life sciences companies to invest their resources in areas that secure the earlier and broader use of new technologies and new medicines. But in a fiscally unsustainable healthcare system, the earlier and broader use of expensive new medicines will, in quite a lot of cases, actually be the opposite of what healthcare providers actually want. Instead, we're going to need to develop and gain confidence with new reimbursement and commercial models that actually incentivize life sciences companies to develop and apply their resources in areas that actually deliver the experiences and outcomes that patients want. Doing so, won't just support healthcare sustainability, but it will actually generate access to new streams of value for life sciences companies. And as all of this starts to bite, and as the sector figures out how best to evolve, patient support initiatives and programs are becoming increasingly present and increasingly important. Put simply, a patient support program, or PSP for short, is a collection of services alongside the core drug or therapy that support the patient from diagnosis through treatment pathways and ultimately to outcomes that can make a fundamental difference to their health and their quality of life. And as we've explored with several guests previously, patients have access to more information than they've ever had before, which can be overwhelming as well as empowering. Therefore, having personalised guidance on how to navigate healthcare services, help with understanding why treatment is needed, and how to stick to a treatment regime and the best ways to manage their condition can really make a very big difference to a patient's journey and the outcome. This is particularly true in chronic disease management, where patients also often need constant encouragement and support to keep going with their care plan, often known as adherence. Designing and delivering cost-effective patient support programs can be complex, particularly when working across multiple healthcare systems that may be funded by different sources such as insurance, taxation, or indeed increasingly self-funded. And a combination of these approaches is often present. And despite the differences across markets, the ultimate goal to improve patient outcomes remains the same. So too do the basic principles that underpin good patient support. Now, in episode 16, I spoke to our friend and colleague, Marcus Ineson, and covered a lot of ground associated with the rise of the customer in healthcare and life sciences. Marcus has got a wealth of practical experience and some challenging views on what works well and what needs to change in the design of initiatives such as PSPs. And in this episode, platforming from the conversation that we had in episode 16, We take a deep dive into the subject of patient support program design and reflect upon some of the practical experiences in designing these programs across a range of different disease areas. If you're someone that works in a life sciences company, either as a leader or indeed are directly involved in the design and development and indeed delivery of patient support programs in any way, shape or form, hopefully this podcast will, if nothing else, 
challenge you to think about some of the areas of consideration, but also may even prompt you to agree or disagree with some of the things that we're talking about. So please get in touch either by commenting on the episode via LinkedIn and other social platforms, or indeed getting in touch directly because we'd love to speak to you about the subject. So let's rejoin the conversation with Marcus and get stuck into the deep dive. Okay, so let's build on some of the stuff we've talked about already then. I mean, we've talked there a bit about what the life sciences sector per se can start to do, you know, perhaps differently and very practically to to try and address some of these these issues. And you talked a little bit there about regulation. I mean, we do a lot of work at PEM within sectors that are both regulated and heavily if I could call it intermediated, and certainly pharma is no exception to that. And I know that when we were chatting in preparation to this, we talked a bit about how, for example, the NHS sort of acts as an intermediary for pharma and other health diagnosis and healthcare delivery organisations. So given what we've talked about there and sort of the, the notion of trying to get closer to, and I'm going to use the word customer here, <laughs> just to avoid calling them patients, you know, what are the implications of that? Um, you know, if you've got an intermediary sitting there and you've got sort of pharma perhaps seeing the NHS almost as box movers within their value chain, you know, sort of thinking of it from a very business perspective, you know, what are the implications of that? And how do you, within the regulatory constraints and frameworks that you've got, actually get closer to the customer so that you avoid, if I could put it, one size fits all propositions? Yeah, I guess it it starts at what you said, that, you know, the, the clinician is the intermediary. In most PSPs, there are very few exceptions currently. The uh, person on a treatment is enrolled by a clinician. And there are some very good reasons why that is a good option. But there are also ways of getting people to enroll themselves. And in some ways, that's that's slightly better on some regulatory points. You know, there's nothing stopping an individual making their own choices. But just backtracking again so most commonly in the uk because of the nature of products being launched that are supported by psp at the moment it's that narrowing i guess of what we were talking about their their home care dispense and deliver with an element of education either in home or remotely and that that's what i was i guess referring to at the beginning was psp has become ubiquitous with that and and narrowed and some people i guess in pharma have don't have experience of a broader option than that on products that are not dispense and deliver and and i think again it's quite telling that that has happened because products that don't require that often no one thinks about a psp so I, i i think we need to broaden out a bit i think also from it touches on the regulatory. There has been a tendency for the life science sector to go with what sometimes have been self-appointed individuals or organisations, often NHS, quasi-NHS organisations, who then decide what services people using PSPs can have and approve only things they want pharma to provide and therefore can be offered to NHS organisations. You know, I guess we all know why, you know, often for very good reasons, that the pharma and life sciences industry is risk averse. 
but the willingness of industry to accept the care they provide being policed has led to a legitimization of a process that has genericized services offered, which means PSPs look like box moving and they all look the same. And even when additional elements are added, for example, PAM scoring and a variation in approach based on that, it's a the way it's used currently is very basic and it's thinly disguised adherence and persistence that's unlikely to have a major impact on outcomes because it's such a watered down approach often to make it easy for CSOs and home care companies to deliver um, and, and I will probably end up coming back to that as well because <laughs> that's another one of my hobby horses. The other inhibitor of innovation is farmer often wants to make it easier by appointing one supplier to deliver all the services in one market or across multiple markets. That severely limits how a PSP is delivered as every supplier fits their solution to the requirement. And I've seen this happen so many times that a life science company say they want a differentiated offering. They put out an RFP that states that they're told the offering will be differentiated and what they get is the same program as everyone else with a small adjustment but in essence it's indistinguishable from a standard program so again you're into that genericized box moving kind of approach you know you're just taking the people participating in the psp through a set of pretty fixed stages and the same it's just a sausage machine in a lot of cases i'm sorry if that upsets some people that maybe think they've commissioned a really amazing oh. psp they can comment on the uh, on the bottom of the uh, podcast if they want and enter into debate but i get i get your point entirely yeah. yeah yeah so um you know the alternative really currently see that's adopted seems to be uh, paying the supplier to develop their own systems to do something different for you that isn't a particularly good one either, as it means you're locked into them. They own the methodology and operational capability. In effect, you've paid them to build value for them, which they can re then resell to another organization, which ultimately leads to your enhanced differentiated offering becoming the generic standard. You know, so and there, there are ways of, of avoiding that, I think. Um, one of the key things is start planning and designing earlier. If if you put an RFP out for a PSP six months before you want it to launch, you're accepting you are getting a bog standard indistinguishable PSP because there isn't time to do anything else. And it's not surprising that the providers, the CSOs and the home care companies immediately start wrangling what you want into their standard processes because there literally isn't time to do anything else. One thing I would also add from a provider perspective, because I've sat on that side an awful lot, is in the RFP process, commissioning organizations, the life science companies need to keep their bargain on timelines. So often after submission, a company takes two to three times longer than they state to make a decision. Then they start negotiating a contract, which gives providers no time to do a great job. So this isn't just about providers wanting to squish everything into their own processes this is sometimes about the people commissioning a psp don't give them the opportunity because they expect the provider to make up 
the time for their prevarication. So a plea to anybody who commissions PSPs, give yourself more time and stick to your timelines. You know, it's not okay to insist that um, uh, PSPs delivered on the original timeline when you've destroyed it. I think the other big thing to prevent the genericized, undifferentiated offering is take a solution agnostic approach. Either do the design yourselves, and that means in detail, or use an external resource that has no interest in the operational delivery of the solution but make sure that external resource understands the statutory and regulatory landscapes in the markets you want to offer in and has an understanding of the operational requirements and capabilities required to deliver that healthcare. You know, I'll say this again, you are commissioning healthcare in most situations. You need to make sure that, one, it's allowable, and two, that whoever's going to do that for you is operationally capable and resilient. From experience, there is a lot of smoke and mirrors out there. And if you don't know how to recognize the smoke and mirrors or have someone who can, you will end up disappointed with your program and its outcomes. Mm. The other bit is, is, I guess, a variation on the theme. Don't leave it to the imagination of providers of the solution at all as to how they deliver it. Be really clear what you want and how you want it. If you leave anything to interpretation, they will interpret it as their standard operating model and you are back to the start again. Mm -hmm. And the problem is at that point, they tend to go away and say, we'll get everything set up and they come back and say, here it is. And even if you recognize, actually, this isn't what we really asked for, it's too late especially if you put the RFP out six months before you wanted the PSP to start, then you kind of have to put up with what they got because you can't change at that point and they don't have time to change. And I guess the next point is a slight jump back in the in that timeline. When you get a supplier shortlist, send in an audit team or, or another team that doesn't just look at whether the supplier does PV well, or is ISO 9001. That's a relatively common part of the due diligence. Send in people to make sure that the organization you're considering have the capability and resilience to deliver what they say they can at scale and deploy at the speed you intend. The company you choose are delivering healthcare and participant experience in your name so make sure they can actually do what they're supposed to do. You know, I, I've seen people put up really amazing slides of electronic patient record systems that do all sorts of things. I also know that a lot of those were really nice slides with no system behind them. So, you know, you need people who either internally or external resource who can scratch the surface and know uh, it may not be a very nice term because we are talking about healthcare, but know where the bodies will be buried mm. and know because they understand what it is to deliver healthcare. I think the other thing is don't be fixated on one supplier. Design the solution. Make sure that you or your external resource finds the best partners in each market to deliver the solution. While 
some organisations will claim it. I haven't seen any one supplier who has the capability to provide a best-in-class solution over every possible delivery channel in every market. So if you choose to go with the, let's just pick one supplier, it'll be easier, then you are accepting that in some markets you are going to have partial coverage, second best, and suboptimal delivery. You know, it's a big job. You actually need to create a structure where you can use multiple providers, but you have a coordination there. And and I think one of the key things for me is look for opportunities to insource and build internal capability to deliver the really valuable parts of programs. Mm -hmm. This is a really unusual approach at the moment, but there is no reason why life sciences companies cannot bring some services in-house. If that works for a portfolio and you know and are really committed in the long term to patient, I'm using the word, patient experience (laughs) being part of your long-term strategy, you can run parts of the service in-house and then you will own the methodology for a differentiated service. I think this is the best approach, outsource the box moving, insource the engagement and value added parts of PSPs and engagement programs. Mm. And, you know, you have to know what you're doing, you know, going back to the regulatory landscape, statutory but statutory uh, requirements. It is absolutely doable. But I guess what I would say to a hopefully the people listening can you imagine how different the dynamic could be if you're talking to a hcp and instead of discussing what your provider is delivering you are actually part of the management of patients again look i said it what the insights would be if your people your people were interacting with participants in the program every day directly on who are you know as part as part of running the program Mm. it it would put you on a you know if we're talking about customers and if we're talking about the people who ultimately use your products you would have part of your organization talking to those people every day about what it's like to use your product and the impact it has and what else around how a condition affects their lives you might be able to help them with you know you would have to you have to separate that part of the organization to an extent but you could have your clinicians talking to the clinicians who are ultimately managing those people it would be a completely different dynamic and you could invest heavily in differentiation because you would own that differentiation you would not be outsourcing it anymore i think that that we could probably do a whole program on just that but you know there is an opportunity there in most markets it could be done uh, and uh, i know people will kind of say well, the uk is probably the most heavily regulated from a healthcare regulator perspective it is and we also the abpi code is the most restrictive anywhere it can still be done yeah, no, interesting, interesting. And thank you for sharing so openly so much 
really practical and valuable advice there. I mean, a lot of that resonates in terms of the work that we do. And the point you're making at the end there about in-source versus outsource is a problem that exists in many sectors, you know, uh, customer service generally, you know, at what point you decide that that vital touch point that you have with your customers, you you hand it over to somebody else and you lose that direct contact with somebody. It's the same principle in my mind. And um, I, I take take your point. If that's your point of differentiation, then not having it in your organization starts to look a bit odd. So really interesting. And, you know, we talk there a lot about really getting uh, a strong sense through immersion by actually being in contact with the, the users of the service, be they HCPs or indeed the end user. I mean, sort of thinking about the the whole design of PSPs then, I mean, I, I totally take your point about differentiation. We often talk about patient involvement. Yeah, I use the word there, or let's talk about consumer involvement in the whole proposition and service des- design. So, you know, again, it's a, it's a, a problem in many industries. How do you go about doing that? And, you know, it strikes me that we're all having to adapt to the way in which we go about designing propositions simply because customer expectations are changing and the whole world of um, how people get information is changing. So within life sciences, with these more informed impatience consumers who are in theory more empowered, how do you involve patients and collaborate with them in order to meet their changing needs in a way that's actually going to deliver a better outcome? In what stage do you do that? And what about patient advocacy and patient advocacy groups in in that process? I mean, how do you time it all and how do you all bring it together to to create the perfect design? Well, that's another big question. So so I'm probably going to start by talking about some of the problems that are in the way. And but then, you know, there are there are ways around it uh, and there are ways to end up with a really good involvement. So one of the issues with healthcare that is still very often the case is that healthcare is structured around how clinicians, often doctors, want to work, whether that's in primary or secondary care. So even when you look at the necessary increase in virtual consultations that we've had in the last 18 months they're still structured around hcp availability and very much like outpatients or gp surgeries or ward rounds have always been they're just done virtually and that goes back to uh, clinical responsibility that's baked into the healthcare system and where one medic is ultimately responsible for part of a patient's healthcare management and it goes back to the my patient thing so Actually, getting to patients historically has been difficult because you've had to go through a clinician unless you went through a market research company who could find people who were being treated for certain conditions. The only way you could access them was through a clinician. Now, that would be a form of selection in itself because they would quite naturally pick people that they think would present in a specific way or may actually say what they think should happen and that would affect your design you can now go to patient organizations and and you know they are there are some amazing patient organizations out there but again a lot of patient organizations are for if you like the more common conditions uh, where there are a lot of people so that there are enough people to organize themselves and also i guess enough people that uh, commercial organizations are interested in helping to support because you know it takes a certain level of resource whether 
there are 100,000 people with a condition or if there were five to organise a patient organisation. And indeed, some patient organisations, you know, have a level of corporacy now. So again, getting direct to the patient is can be difficult, although I will talk a little more about the benefits of patient organisations in a minute. So um, when it comes to healthcare and life sciences, you are faced with local statutory and regulatory frameworks, the medical establishment and how it wants to work, the constraints of the healthcare system before you get anywhere near an actual person wanting healthcare. The other thing to bear in mind is I guess that many of the conditions, especially rare diseases that farmers increasingly dealing with, Every person with that condition can experience it differently. So even using a patient organisation, it's hard to get to a what the patient wants point of view. If five people in the UK and 120 across Europe are the only people that have that condition, how do you incorporate that? into a PSP or, or an engagement program. So, you know, it, it, by definition, there are not many people with each condition. And that also means they're spread across the globe in different healthcare systems, different cultures, and different personal circumstances. One size will not fit all. And again, we we'll talk a little bit later about how you make programs more accessible. I think you're also at risk of hearing often what the most vocal people with a condition uh, have to say. So you can end up involving very few people in designing a pathway rather than what the needs of the majority are. So so there's a, there's a load of problems, and you asked me about a solution. Again, one of the key things that needs to happen is when you are looking to design a PSP, you need to start at least two to three years out and actually there's not really any reason why that can't happen because i was listening to uh, one of your previous guests talking about you know senior farmer executives are making 40-year decisions about what products go forward so you know because what molecule continues its development so if you are at two to three even four to five years out, you know what's coming. Start thinking about your design early. You can't incorporate customer experience and requirements into healthcare design. Again, if you chuck out an RFP six months before launch, budget has to be allocated way in advance and a clear pathway to a solution design freeze needs to be in place a number of years out so that that's that's the first thing because that gives you the time to find the best way to involve people who'll use the service and you know despite what i said earlier about some of the you know, limitations of patient organizations in some circumstances they are incredibly useful in doing that uh, i think the key with patient organizations is going to them with an open mind don't just talk about the parts of the journey you're interested in. Understand all of it. It's that old mantra of listening to understand, not to respond. Don't go in having made a decision about what a program looks like or about what you want to do before listening to the patient organization. Listen and really challenge yourself about 
how you can help in the broadest sense and build that into your program design. Because otherwise, you're just justifying what you want to do with picking out some of the requirements they've identified. When you've got to that point, you can design in multiple strands of requirement requirement determination, including the end users of the service, and give yourself time to understand and deconstruct the requirements mm-hmm. to put together a solution. Another thing that needs to be considered when embarking on a process like this is how focus and progress is maintained over time. I, I think we, we all know that in life science companies, people get moved around quite a lot, especially in more junior to middle levels in brands and across franchises so it's really hard people often don't finish products so building a medium-term strategy for project stability until design freeze at the very least design freeze is really important and at the risk of sounding like an advert it might be better to get external resourcing to do that to achieve it because then you can still move your people around if if you want to but i think that ownership of that design process over three to five years is is very important when you've got that in place you need to make sure the model is flexible enough to meet the needs of all the people who participate in the program regardless of the healthcare system and their cultural and economic situation one size will not fit all so you know don't kid yourself you know it's kind of let's do a purely digital program okay well who in that market has access to digital technology to participate you're automatically excluding people and i think that using an approach like a hub and spoke model of a PSP because often companies want to design these either globally or at a you know at a, a pan continental level a hub and spoke model gives you the opportunity to develop resources centrally and the support structures while allowing local affiliates to configure those resources for their local situation i think however one of the things you should be doing if you're using a hub and spoke model is to make sure that you challenge them to go for the most ambitious program they can not put in place their most convenient version of it because then you're you know you often end up with a if somebody participates in the most immersive experience of a program all this really good stuff happens they get a great experience they get good outcomes you get great insights and you know it is great for the profile of the business but how many people actually end up in that most immersive part of uh, version of the program so yeah. i think it should be, you know, that it should be an ambitious design and it should be an ambitious rollout. There should be an expectation that as many people as possible get the full immersive experience. And just going back to something I said before, the other thing about healthcare is that you really learn is when people are using a service. So it's everything you designed, it's like that old saying, isn't it? You know, um, a military strategy does not survive the first contact with the enemy you know you you only you can design and and you know you can use all your experience 
and you can use patient organizations you can use clinicians but when you're running healthcare and you know i will say again a psp is you are running healthcare or getting somebody to run healthcare in your name you really learn how good it is when people start using it you have to build in constant feedback and accept that the program you start with should never be the same as the one you have in 12 months. I can't think of a better definition of a healthcare program that will ultimately fail the people it's trying to help than one that does not constantly iterate based on the evolving stated and apparent needs of the people who are using it. You know, in healthcare, we talk about continuous improvement and that means accepting you have never perfected anything or as a uh, one a mentor of mine uh, has always said you have to be belligerently dissatisfied constantly if you are deliver well if you're delivering anything but if you're delivering healthcare particularly if you think you are there you are about to start down the slippery slope to uh, irrelevance. Wow. Okay, that's um, probably the most comprehensive description of, um, of of some of the sort of practical considerations in in designing these things. And if we can, I'd like to even dig a little bit deeper still, if I may, because we're really doing a great deep dive here into kind of best practice, if you like. I mean, specifically thinking about that design process i mean for people that are really interested in this subject and sort of thinking about the the, the practical hows i mean how do you actually you know actually getting into the specific tools and the way in which you go about designing these things i wonder if you could comment a little bit on sort of taking us through the specific ways of doing it because again i think quite often when we talk about these things we give these high level descriptions and they all sound great but perhaps people can't quite grasp out of the ether what you're specifically talking about so can you bring it to life even more in terms of saying okay fine we're we're day one we're going to do these things what are some of the tools we'd actually use okay so so i think again that's a big question we could do a whole program on that but the first thing is as i would as i previously mentioned is you've got to start from a solution agnostic standpoint if you start by saying we're going to build a digital only solution you are immediately limiting the outcomes you can achieve by narrowing down the number of people who will use it so truly start without solution bias but make sure you clearly define the outcome you want to provide for the users of the service. That's a chunk of work on its own because you can't assume what that is. And again, it's don't start from how do we best achieve adherence and persistence with our product because that will absolutely definitely not give the people who will participate in the program the best outcome and map the whole pathway from the perspective of the people who are going to use it uh, use the psp it's fine to onboard them at specific point but you need to know what's happened to them before they reach that point mm. pre-diagnosis if you can because when they arrive at your program entry point and you are a clinician offer them the opportunity to use it you need to know what they've experienced to that point in order to know how to present it to them and give you the maximum opportunity to get them on board and keep them on board 
you know, it's we all carry baggage from our experience. So what baggage is that person arriving at your program with? And if you're only interested in taking people to a specific point in the patient journey, be sure you know what happens to them next and help them make the transition. You know, it's like we were talking about before. People pick a an arbitrary uh, point in time at which, you know, people are no longer on the PSP and uh, they, they can fall off the end, you know. So, and I think also be re- if you are going to entirely, for want of a better word, abandon them at the end of a, a period, tell them that at the beginning, tell them what to expect. Don't give them the impression that you are going to be there to support them forever. And work through the detail of what you're going to offer. And I mean the operational detail. I know I'm biased because I'm, as well as the regulatory guy, I am the ops guy. Don't just draw generalized flows that fit on one slide. I know that's lovely when you're presenting it to the uh, senior teams. If you do that, you don't understand the service that you're talking about you know break it down call out the outcomes at each point and if you're going to rfp if you're going to externalize the delivery of this put that detail in so you get what you intend again not what the provider wants to get away with giving you from their existing operational model you know and and you you absolutely need to do that unless you really don't care what service the patient gets and and i don't think anybody in pharma doesn't care what happens to patients i think you know the pharma industry despite you know what some people think is full of people who want to do the very best for the people they serve Uh, so i don't believe people don't care but that's one of the things you've got to do if you if you do you know the number of times i have shocked clients by doing detailed flows of these services and then saying is that what you want you have to go very granular and and you know yes i do love flow charts because you can visualize exactly what's happening and spot problems uh, and spot opportunities from a long way out if you do that and part of that is doing the what ifs know what systems you're providers will need know the detail of the capability providers need to have make providers demonstrate not just say what they that they can do what's needed and make sure they can do that well and at scale and understand if you want to provide something that has multiple facets going back to the point earlier that one provider is very unlikely to be able to do everything really well so don't exclude all but the largest most inflexible organizations and their delivery models because you think it's easier to manage and less expensive it isn't and it may not be and that brings me to something that's really important in the delivery of healthcare and that is don't exclude people because of how you deliver a program uh, and how you design it your program should be accessible whether 
or not people have communication limitations, don't speak the main language of the company, have access to communication tools or are economically disadvantaged. A lot of PSPs are really only suitable for people who have a single condition and know the problem. Uh, If you have a PSP running, ask yourself, have you ever approved materials that support visually impaired participants in a PSP or or even a Braille version? That's just one example. But, you know, if you haven't, then you have probably excluded people who are visually impaired, you know, and there are multiple other communication difficulties that people could have. There are multiple other disadvantages or limitations people could have. You know, if you look at how the NHS uh, tries to deliver care, they do, they try to design it so that no one is excluded. You know, you can argue about whether they achieve that all the time. That's how they have to design health uh, care services. You are providing healthcare services, often through a third party. Ask them how they're going to deal with that and make sure it is truly inclusive and considers diversity. An interesting way of approaching PSP design that I often use is to start with the entirely analog version and build up from there. And I I didn't come up with this idea. I came up with it actually working with a provider of digital solutions. And uh, what we did was we started with what would this look like if it was entirely analog? And then treat everything else as an enhancement you know so how would you deliver this if the participant is entirely digitally illiterate or doesn't have access to technology and and always remember just because it's digital and ai and tech is sexy and ultimately sometimes people go for that because long term it's relatively inexpensive that doesn't mean it should be your go-to solution because you are instantly with a digital only solution excluding a lot of people and even if they have access to tech why would you assume that they want to access their healthcare that way uh, you know there are interesting studies looking at quite young people i read one in mental health where they were offered a, a fully digital program and they didn't like it they, it's digital's great for getting information but interacting, people want to talk to a human about their healthcare. At some point, they want to interact with a human, and that's not a chatbot. So I think a real top tip is start with an entirely analog version of your PSP. And going back to a point I made earlier, you are commissioned, you are either going to do it yourself, but that's very rare, as we've talked about. You are commissioning people to deliver healthcare in your name. So take that seriously. Mm. You can't outsource your responsibility for compliance with things like the ABPI code if you use a third party. So don't outsource your responsibility for the delivery of compliant, effective, safe, caring, responsive well-led healthcare in your name. Some providers that life science companies continue to use have terrible inspection results from regulators. Others have never been inspected because the regulators see them as 
relatively low risk because they sometimes don't understand them. And you get used to and continue to get used to the almost lack of due diligence and concern for the people who are receiving the care in your name. So make sure you know what uh, what providers are registered for with uh, regulators in that jurisdiction. And that can take a lot of understanding because even in the UK, there are significant differences between the different nations, what you need to be registered with regulators for. In England, you can do things that you don't have to be registered for in Scotland and Northern Ireland and vice versa. So give you an example, in England, the CQC defines certain things as regulated activity. Education is not a regulated activity in England, but if you use certain healthcare professionals to deliver education in Scotland and Northern Ireland, that provider has to be registered with their regulators and also i think you know across europe there is also a mix of markets where there is regulation very similar to the uk and and in some cases very light touch regulation so i think another thing to ask yourselves is if you are operating a patient support program in a market where there is no regulation or registration what standards are you going to expect of a provider or are you just going to let them deliver any standard so and how are you going to make sure that they're doing that so i think an understanding of the regulatory landscape versus what you are wanting to do is very important i think also understanding the evolving healthcare regulatory landscape is important. So again, I'm going to take the UK as an example. UK regulators are beginning to consider and in some cases implement scrutiny and registration of digital healthcare. And they are defining what they consider to be digital healthcare. And that definition is reasonably broad and may get broader. So if you are not on top of that and you have a fully digital program that program could be shut down with zero notice if a regulation comes in and your provider isn't prepared now i think one of the things that you've got to consider with regulators is they can't practically you know they often want to show they've got teeth and they're doing a good job and they can't practically shut down a public sector provider the impact would be too great. You know, you see it in the NHS. Almost it doesn't matter how badly a trust fails. It doesn't get shut down. You can't do that. Mm. So if they want to show they've got teeth and that they're prepared to act in the case of poor care delivery, they will do that in a non-public sector, non-essential service. And and that, I guess that's another reason for making sure that your providers are offering a good service according to the healthcare regulations because you do not want to be associated with a poor provider and i think life sciences company and companies in general spend very little effort determining the capability resilience and regulatory compliance of providers if someone says they're registers and can do something they seem to take it on face value if you if you don't know how to effectively scrutinize a potential provider, let alone one that you've already using, then get someone who can. 
That's yeah. my rant over. <laughs> <laughs> no, a very powerful rant as well. And um, again, you know, thank you for allowing me to go even deeper because I think, you know, extremely valuable experience-based advice, loads of really not only sensible, but I, I guess quite sort of pithy observations there that people hopefully will, will sit there and think, okay, let me just test myself here in terms of what I'm doing and whether I'm actually um, doing things in the way that you're talking about there. Thanks very much for listening today. If you found that useful, please give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And if you'd like to know more, you can find us at penpartnership.com or you can follow Pen Partnership on LinkedIn. Until next time, goodbye.